Welcome back to Seeing Clearly, Acting Wisely with me, Jake Dartington. And this is part two of my conversation with Anushka Fernandopoule on the five aggregates. Anushka is a teacher based in San Francisco, a member of the Spirit Rock Teacher Council. And if you haven't heard part one, please listen to that first. Otherwise, what follows might not make so much sense. But in part two, we look at perception, mental formations and consciousness. So we've looked at form, we've looked at feeling, and then we have perceptions, we could say, Sanya. Yeah, so perception is a very interesting one. And now we're getting kind of more subtle, right, from the body is like fairly clunky and you could notice the body at least in kind of gross movements uh, relatively easily. Um, even though like in tuning into the body, you can get to very refined levels of um, awareness of sensations in the body. Uh, then feeling is like some aspect cutting across to tune into that. Perception is in the mental field. Uh, I could say this is in the field of the mind and it's like the factor of recognition in some ways, and it happens in all different moments, uh, perception. And particularly interesting is misperception. You know, when we take something to be something it is not, which is actually happening a lot of the time. So on a very basic level, you could say perception is like when we see something and then we identify it, like, uh, you know, glass or a table or I might see you and recognize Jake, uh, the name, right? Um, and it's not always going on in the mind, like you're labeling things verbally, otherwise it would be like extremely busy. But like, you know, when you see a bunch of stuff on the table, when you go to eat a meal, like which one, the fork you should use for the salad and which one, the spoon you should use for the soup. And, you know, and um, like babies don't know that, you know, babies are sort of kind of tuning into the, world and experience. And in fact, um, maybe here it's worth it to talk about this, um, the way in which our, our life is made up of these six different sense experiences, right? Um, that are rapidly changing of seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing, and then the mind. Uh, and in that, there's always like a moment of perception and you can even see sometimes like really little kids kind of like putting things together. You know, it's like, Oh, there's a sight of something. And then when you touch it, there's a feeling of this. And then when you taste it, there's a taste of this. And then most of the time they're getting into trouble because they shouldn't taste everything and stuff like that. Um, but it's kind of like they're honing their perception of like, Oh, this one is like this, this one's like this. And then, uh, it takes some training in perception of what is edible versus inedible, for example, <laughs> you know, which is like that period you really have to watch babies a lot because they'll put any old thing in their mouth, you know. And um, yeah, so we train in that, the perception. So the thing is, we often have um, misperceptions, and that's one aspect of this that's very, very helpful to learn and tune into. Um, but the first thing is just to recognize like there is such a thing as perception and our perceptions also uh, here we can notice as they arise like they're they're also not me or mine and uh, they're conditioned like they have come together conditionally like if I hadn't met you before I wouldn't be able to perceive you as Jake right I mean I might perceive you as a human <laughs> but I wouldn't know that other sub label on that um, and 
Also in that um, arising of uh, perception in that way, uh, particularly like the perception of something as me or mine, like we mistake that a lot, you know, and in some ways you could say all of this five aggregates practice is a training in uh, perception, like training our perception to see clearly uh, what we take to be ourselves or me or mine uh, as not necessarily that. Yes, yes. Yeah. And as you say that around how our perceptions are shaped, it brings to my mind um, our language, actually, you know, and how being brought up to speak a particular language or to learn another language later in life. I mean, that so much shapes our perceptions, doesn't it? The way we make sense of the world, the categories and labels and names that we put on things. Um and you know that that's kind of again that's not self, isn't it? I, uh, for all of us, our first language is not something we chose. You know, we're kind of born and socialized into a language, and then we start to see the world in the way that is conditioned by that language. I think. Right, and then we can even train kind of like within that sort of uh, more more so. So, for example, like during the pandemic, I like many people have become a bit more of a bird watcher. Uh, which, uh, like before, I like nature a lot, but I was kind of more interested in uh, like four-legged animals than birds. But, you know, being locked in the apartment, I started to notice the bird life much more. And so I actually have uh, refined my uh, vocabulary and perception of different birds a lot more uh, during this time. So I have much more of a vocabulary and like understand the nuance of um, what they are. I should say, though, it's, it's interesting to notice, particularly the times in which perception fails. And um, this is it's kind of a subset of like, don't believe everything you think or recognize that your thoughts are not your own. Um, because, for example, if I try to identify a bird and I don't know it, you know, then I can see like, oh, the mind is grasping for some perception and it's not there. Or sometimes because I'm excited about seeing birds, uh, then I'll see something and think it's a bird, but then it's just a piece of cloth like fluttering that's been stuck on a tree or something. Uh, so at first the perception was bird, but then it's like, okay, just cloth, right? Um, or sometimes you try to remember someone's name and this like happens as you get up in years, right? And it becomes harder and harder to remember the name and it's the sensation of that attempted perception. It reminds me of like trying to strike a match and the match not lighting, you know, it's just like, and then, you know, finally it, it might light, or maybe it doesn't light. And then, you know, some hours later, you suddenly are like, oh, that was who it was. It was, yeah, <laughs> that was Jake. That's such who it was. That was his name. Dartington, that's his last name. Right. Okay. <laughs> and one of the classic examples of misperception that you bring to mind as you say this is the snake and the rope. Yes, yes, you know, yes. Like, so we, we see that this sort of shape in the corner, we think it's a snake. And then, of course, then feel very frightened and um, worry about what's going to happen. And then if we go closer and see it's a rope, then that fear kind of disappears. And, and that that kind of thing is really, yeah, really profound for us. And I'm wondering, do you think, I mean, it's an aspect of our practice to kind of train our perceptions or to train ourselves to, um, yeah, maybe to step back from some of our fixed perceptions or be a little more questioning of them. Um, yeah, I think absolutely. And um, the Buddha even talks about, you know, several categories in which we misperceive things so that we're training our perception to be 
uh, more aligned with the Dhamma, which is like the truth of the way things are, you know, so um, we misperceive things that are impermanent as if they're permanent, right? We misperceive things that are actually not ourself and we take them to be ourself in some way, in some, as some like permanent existing entity over which we have control. Even we misperceive things that are, uh, he says like unbeautiful to be beautiful <laughs> you know, sometimes, which is related to those other two, like that everything is always uh, changing and decaying and, um, you know, always departing. And yet we take it to be some entity that we can capture and um, own or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, it's it's a lot about training of perception, you could say, too. Mm-hmm. And and then there's this relationship then, isn't there, in how we relate to those things. If we perceive something as permanent and satisfying, of, you know, it kind of almost makes sense we're going to crave it. You know, ah, that's what we want. So the misperception feeds the the craving. The, 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 Absolutely. The beauty in this, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like underneath that is it's like, well, why is it that we're trying to uh, – completely invest in like getting this thing or this title or this you know amount of money or this person or something and it's because we don't actually perceive that to be like un unownable or ungraspable or you know impermanent too mm-hmm. in some way um yeah it all it all like the anatta aspect and the anatta is like the non-self uh, as well as the anicca, this uh, impermanence of it, and then the dukkha is that, like, therefore, the unreliability of it is kind of rife uh, in all of this. Mm. Yeah, it always brings to my mind this contemplation. A, a job that I had in—I mean, I worked for many years in, in a college, um, and in the first couple of years, um, I just—I sort of felt like I'd got this job that was going to last me for the rest of my life you know I just kind of loved it so much I've just arrived and things and I definitely spent a lot of time um, in later years thinking why isn't it like it was in 2003 you know (laughs) so there was just this kind of wish you know a lot of 2005 and 6 was wishing it was 2003 and so I could really see that process you know there's something that I really liked and thought this is great and then perceiving it as permanent and then the struggle as you know like all things it 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 changed and i was wondering are there sort of particular examples in your life that come to your mind when you think of that that you know the feeling when you sort of perceived something as permanent and satisfying and then uh, on reflection afterwards you think ah yeah that's that's what was happening (laughs) yeah definitely i mean in terms of like uh configurations even sort of configurations of um, friendships or social structures so like during the um, pandemic a lot of people have left san francisco or have moved away or different things you know have happened and like that and uh, there's a lot of change that has happened within the city and um even before the pandemic there was a lot of change that was happening and uh, could notice the extent to which um you know those of us who have lived here for a while like either had some uh, set idea about how things should be and then suffered when it wasn't like that. So uh, there's this joke in um, in the Bay Area, but I think in California in general, but in the Bay Area that you know whoever comes here and then someone else comes after, 
we're always like, oh, you just missed the good time. It was just, it was great just before you got here. And now it's all, you know, and that that was true during the gold rush. That was true during the like 60s, like summer of love people. You know, that was true during the uh, like tech boom, you know, and each time I was like, oh, it was great before. And you just got here just after. It happened. <laughs> yeah. And then for those who have been here also, there can be this sense of like, like, oh yeah, it used to be good and now it's not good anymore. So if you can't be like, sort of, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't move away if you don't like it anymore. Like, that's totally fine. But this suffering that can come to clinging to how this configuration is, or um, even in one's mind, sort of reifying a certain time or era in some ways. Yes, yes. Yes, and I guess our perceptions do that, don't they? Reify, you know, kind of making it more more real. You know, like, I, I'm almost thinking that the way it was in the 60s with hyphens, as if that was kind of one thing, but of course that was changing moments and coming and going and ups and downs and things. It, but but that phrase or that perception, the way it was in the sixties, almost feeds that sense. Ah, oh, that was something solid that's not here anymore. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, and you see this in in our politics in America. You know, there was this whole like make America great again kind of thing, and it was like, well, what was that great period? Who was it great for? You know, what was your idea of that greatness? Like when there was segregation and uh, women still couldn't uh, have their own financial independence or you know it was it was only great maybe for a very small sliver of people that benefited from the oppression of all these other people <laughs> you know that like white property owning men were able to have a certain um, privilege through being served by all these other people and uh, you know the wealth being built at that time was based on slavery and based on like land having been taken from native people and who was able to be a citizen who was able to have a vote or you know any of that stuff mm-hmm. so uh, there's like this mythologizing that's really dangerous i think you know and we don't uh, interrogate that more yes yes yeah no thank you and that Again, that sense, that phrase, you know, make America great again, the kind of vagueness of that. It, it is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it doesn't say, you know, when was it great? What does great mean? Who was it great for? And all of those <laughs> things that you're getting in there and how those, yeah, how those those perceptions do sort of, well, there can be a lot of emotion around that, really, can't there? A lot of attachment to that kind of idea about, you know, what it means. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll add one more thing. Well, please I know do, yeah. time. In, in the realm of perceptions, because it's June and it's Pride Month here. I don't know if they have such a thing in UK or yeah. Europe also. Like that. Yeah, okay, like Pride Month for some reason in June. Yeah, in fact, it's now, uh, I mean, it, that sounds like that's an international thing because that's also now here. Okay, cool, yeah. cool. Because like, I, I think I, I went to, uh, one of my hobbies had been in the past going to different international Pride parades. So in my roaming around, like teaching uh, retreats and stuff. And so I had the occasion to go to like uh, Reykjavik Pride, which I think was in August maybe, and um, Amsterdam Pride, which was particularly awesome. That's on the canals. Um, I have been to London Pride, I believe. Um, And then, yeah, many in the U.S. So this was like a, uh, in my younger days, like a big uh, (laughs) activity of mine to celebrate. But, you know, this, this whole thing about the identity of being LGBTQ, I, in some ways, is around uh, perception, right? Like one's perception of oneself. And then in terms of the sort of uh, oppression of or uh, leaving out of people who have that identity, um, 
there's a sort of like misperception of this not being like a natural part of nature that like some people naturally are in this way, right? Like, and that there can be a fluidity of gender, gender expression and sexual desire. Uh, and yeah, so I think, you know, uh, this factor of Sanya is actually an important underlying piece of mm. Pride Month <laughs> that's, that's not not always recognized as. Yeah. I feel that more and more you're answering that challenge I set you right at the beginning of our conversation. You know, what's the relevance of this for now? And, you know, as you, as you say that, that these kind of things come through more and more, you know, this is not yeah. a dry, abstract topic that aggregates, but, uh, yeah, just how, totally. how relevant it is. Yeah. And I think for most people who identify as LGBTQIA in some ways, there was some moment of um, their own perception of their identity or desire as being not what they were told it would be or should be in some ways. And there's kind of a trope of the coming out story, you know, for those of us in the community, that's like, when I knew, you know, like, what was it that catalyzed, like, when I knew this, like, when was there some clarity of perception around this and then of course there's some choice about like who one tells and how one tells it and so but there's sort of a internal recognition uh, that many many people uh, can identify that uh, most people who are, who are heterosexual don't necessarily identify like when they first recognized they were heterosexual because that was sort of the default like thing Yeah, thank you. So they, I mean, uh, just kind of, you know, taking what you're saying, really, but the, the sense of uh, our identity being in question or something that needs to be thought about, that, that for heterosexual people, for straight people, that it may just not be something that they think about in the same way. It's just like, if that's a sort of taken for granted perception. Um, yeah, it's a different experience. Yeah. yeah, so I always like to tell the people on the LGBTQIA uh, retreats, like, uh, you have had a running start in the spiritual path because you already have had to grapple with this factor of perception. You could, like, you maybe didn't label it in that way, but, like, the recognition of that uh, is something that you already had uh, <laughs> at, at some point in your life, like a flash, uh, or, you know, it, it came upon you. So yeah. uh, it's helpful to, to recognize that and then to work with that as part of your practice too. Yeah, thank you. I feel drawn in different ways to follow our conversations in different directions, but there's also part of me thinking we've got two more to talk about. <laughs> All right, let's, let's, <laughs> so let's cruise let's, on. We can cruise let's, on. Yeah. Let's go for it. So I think you've actually touched on uh, sense consciousness, Vinyana, which is the next one I was going to talk about. I don't know which order makes sense for you, but... Uh, because you did talk about the six uh, sense spheres, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, this vinyana, or the consciousness of this knowing, in some ways after one, let's say one starts practicing with, um, in, in some ways the first is just to know what this is. It's, it's sort of like learning to read, like to know what is form, what is um, a perception, um, what is, uh, we'll get to this, the sankara, uh, the formations, and then vinyana to know what that is, and then to practice with it to recognize these 
char- three characteristics of the impermanence of that, uh, recognizing the ways in which we take it to be ourself, recognizing the ways in which it's unreliable, you know, stuff like that. Um, and in recognizing all of those, though, in, in every moment, there is consciousness, right? So, so there is a knowing. And it could be that we get good at uh, not identifying with those other four aggregates, but then there's kind of like subtly some identification with the consciousness itself, you know, so we feel like there is me who is the knower of, of all. There's a me who is uh, the cognizer. Uh, and the problem with that is that anytime there is some identification with uh, anything, then there is something that has to be like protected or uh, there's some knower that then we cling to in some ways and we don't want it to change. We have some... Uh, yeah, like attachment to it that uh, is both not actually true. Like when you actually look at the knowing, there's no knower in that, right? Mm-hmm. In in the consciousness, like there's no personal characteristics of that. Um, there's even no uh, like agency to some extent about the consciousness arising or uh, even a lot of the time, like what field it is in it is connecting with, right? Like the, whether it's seeing, and, you know, meditators know this, you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to sit here and be present with the body. And then the attention goes to the field of the mind or the attention goes to the field of hearing. And that happens sort of selflessly, like without you intending it or wanting it to, right? Mm -hmm. In some way. So uh, yeah, the consciousness, it's a much more subtle one in some ways to investigate, but can be very powerful to recognize that this too is actually, um, constructed in some way is not me or mine um, and therefore also should not be uh, looked to to uh, identify with mm-hmm. and is this one of the areas where there can be a subtle difference in different teachings because you do hear in you know both classical and also contemporary teachings that there are teachers who do talk more in terms of our true nature or you know our, our true nature being uh, awareness or in the yoga traditions they talk about the atman that they as the kind of uh you know the true self beyond the illusory selves and uh, and some of the mahayana traditions you get this notion of buddha nature which um i don't know i mean maybe again that could be interpreted differently but do, do you feel in your teaching that you really put aside kind of terms like our true nature and and really come back again and again to this sense of actually it's you know consciousness is not self and 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 that feels an important part of your teaching yeah i think here we get into the uh kind of uh, trickiness of language right too uh, because like uh, yeah in some uh, more hindu uh, traditions i think there's this thing a bit more like advaita so like i am I am true consciousness, absolute, and this kind of thing. So it's like, what do you mean by I in that? Because I think they're pointing at not the same kind of personal identification. Maybe, but maybe there. I don't know. So anyway, the way that I frame things usually is to avoid <laughs> such. Uh, and I guess like the Buddha didn't even... There, there can be sometimes this, this um, misinterpretation that 
he wasn't saying there's no self per se, right? And this anatta is more like not self as not a truth to be also taken refuge in, but more like sort of like a the understanding of these three characteristics are a way for us to sort of like un, undo the way in which we usually relate to and identify with um, and live our life. So in that way, I think it works and it makes sense to uh, not identify with consciousness. And the, but that was pretty clear, I think, my interpretation, you know, 2,600 years later <laughs> in the philosophy of it, that it was like, not like there was some permanency within this like mm. consciousness or soul or Atman or something like that. But also in some ways it doesn't matter whether you believe that or not, <laughs> right? I guess like, so I, I would encourage you to spend a lot of time like fussing with it philosophically, but more just in the investigation of uh, of that. Like if you think that is true, then try to find that you know, through awareness of awareness, right? Like try to find that which is the me in that <laughs> in some ways. And and what does it even mean with that? You know, like, is there some uniqueness of that? Is there some stability of that? Is there some way in which um, one is in control of that? Yes. Yeah. Obviously I'm implying that there's not, but, uh, you know, check it out and <laughs> see, yeah. right? Yeah. I really appreciate the kind of pragmatism of that and the encouragement to see for ourselves. Yeah, which is which is really lovely. Um, and I, I'm, yeah, I don't know. I guess these um, whether I've presented these aggregates in a slightly unusual order today. I'm not sure, but the final one is uh, Sankara, and um, yeah, I kind of deliberately left this to last because it's the one that. I guess can be interpreted in different ways and in the Dharma in general has different meanings or different associations. So what, what does it mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Like I, I might've, because of the, uh, I might've left consciousness usually for the last, but mm. I appreciate that you left Sankara for the last, because for me, this is the area of, I'm still, I'm still for sure investigating this one. I mean, I'm investigating all of them. They still are active parts of my practice. Um, this framework, like, I feel like this framework is like a lifelong um, interest. And, um, but this particular one of Sankara has been quite interesting to me because it's harder to grasp. And there's many different translations of the word or interpretations. And it's used differently, even as a Pali word in many different contexts too. Um, so here's some translations of it. I'll give you like a list of some translations that I've come upon and that I've worked with in different ways. So, um, so, uh, or actually maybe I'll ask you first, like which translation have you heard or used most often? So I guess mental formations is the one that comes to mind. Um, right. Um, yeah. Mental formations for sure. I've heard, I think that was the first interpretation that I heard yeah. of it. But then in the investigations, other ones I've heard is um, fabrications or uh, concoctions <laughs> or um, mental fermentations, which is kind of interesting. There's kind of bubbliness of that. Uh, volitions, uh, karmic formations, habitual tendencies, neuroses <laughs> as well. Or the one that, that at the moment I feel um, has been most helpful for me is just drives like uh, kind of like energetic drives mm -hmm. and um, particularly these strong energetic drives that we feel uh, that uh, can 
rule our lives. Uh, so the Buddha is saying that even these drives, these energetic drives, and um, notable also is that one of the uh, translations is also karmic formations, uh, which you know could spend a whole lot of time on that. Is that these drives themselves are uh, constructed, they're uh, conditioned, and they're almost just like energetic weather patterns in some ways. So they're not to be taken absolutely as me or mine. Like you don't have to believe all of them or follow all of them. Uh, so with all of these, like we're trying to, we don't need to kill them. This is a good thing too. Like you don't need to kill them or stop them or um, make them stop being. In fact, uh, you know, arguably like these formations will continue to arise in some way, but we want to see them and see through them. Like we want to understand them. Or maybe a better translation, you know, with, even with, with uh, sati or mindfulness is we want to befriend them. So with all of these aggregates, like we want to befriend each of them. And when I say befriend, um, particularly uh, kind of drawing to the become close to, become intimate with, um, really get to know, uh, connect with, you know, all of the things inherent in that. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. W the phrase that stood out for me there when you said get to know, it kind of brought to my mind the way that we get to know a person. You know, yeah, and, and the way that that's infused with friendliness and a certain care. Because um, it's interesting, our assumptions about what it means to know someone or anything, and there can be that rather distant notion of knowledge. You know, we need to be as distant and objective as possible and simply witness things. But then there is that way that we know a person, which is not at all about being like that, but turning towards being engaged, being friendly. And that's really yeah, totally. Yeah, to sort of see that in terms of our inner experience too. And and in, there's a sort of hanging out with right. And uh, I remember actually when I, I think I met you first. Now I'm remembering at the conference, right, the, the Buddhist teaching conference at IMS. And then I think I was about to go to England the next month or something like that. And you were like, "Hey, look me up when I'm there. We can hang out. You can." Um, and then so then I did. And then we actually walked around London and. Um, uh, I can't remember that time or the next time that I actually went to your dad's house with you and stuff like that. And so it's sort of like, I, I totally appreciated that friendship that you offered. And in that, it was just like a hanging out with, right? Like, I think we, did we ride a um, riverboat also, maybe? Uh, like with the, with the um, tube pass thingy or something? Oh, like, I feel like we just wandered all over. We and... might do. I remember going to a basement restaurant that you'd found in a guidebook, which had some really, really delicious food. I'm just trying to think. Yeah, like Malay food, I think Malaysian food right. or something. And I then uh, I remember I was interested in, yes, and we, I was interested in seeing some of the Harry Potter stuff. And so we went around yeah. the banking area and stuff, the alleys. Uh, so anyway, in that it was, there was some like, there's some plan. It's like, oh, let's meet at this time and then we'll eat and then we'll do this. But there also was a lot of um, sort of informality in the just hanging out together. And I feel like uh, in that way, I feel like we became friends. Like I consider you a friend through that. And probably if I hadn't looked you up and we hadn't like hung out in that way, it would feel like, oh, this is someone I met at a conference and I liked him. But, you know, I wouldn't feel as much like, oh, we're friends, you know. So in that way, too, it's like hang out with your aggregates, <laughs> I guess you could say, right? Like uh, like spend time with them. And 
being curious with, with them and uh, paying attention to them. And I mean, they're always there, like all the time anyway, but we're not always paying attention to them in this way. So in practicing with them, like, for example, with Sankara, like one, um, one way of, of understanding this when some uh, interpreters of this say, you know, it's not just any particular drives, but it's like these particular drives that are about the protection of and knowledge of the self, like these sort of like more over the top drives that are um, kind of related to this non-existent really like self, like protecting that self and keeping that self and uh, this, and then it goes to these sort of cravings, right? The craving for existence. And when the mind gets totally like snagged on something, even like a sense experience and wanting that, or, um, so there's particularly these like stronger drives that then are also the ones that usually get us into trouble, uh, because there's something around like wanting something that then will sometimes make us like lie or um, transgress our integrity in some way. Uh, and it's really that the strength of that drive that we're not, we're, we're kind of kidnapped by, you know, in that moment, right? We're kidnapped by the energy of that. And we, we can't see through it or uh, see it for just what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So the energy of that, like, is to be known. And as we can know that in its strength without even having to hate it, judge it, you know, uh, yeah, uh, obliterate it, uh, then we have some freedom uh, about not being kidnapped by that particular drive, I would say. I find that attitude so helpful you know not to hate it judge it or obliterate it and i don't know if this is true for you but i think in my early years of practice perhaps unconsciously that was what i was trying to do or even how i understood some teachings you know as if there were these habitual tendencies or habitual drives and i somehow needed to heroically overcome them you know but then that could feel like there was a sort of war with myself you know there's all this stuff here that i need to kind of um defeat or something whereas actually the the language of befriending and turning towards getting to know and seeing through actually seeing the nature of uh, that you're describing you know i guess seeing seeing the impermanence and emptiness of these drives is is a different feel, isn't it, from needing to to beat them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's much more fun too. You know, I mean, there's some there can be some joy in the investigation and the befriending of them in that way, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and then it's sort of like the more you learn about it, the more you see there is to learn as well, mm-hmm. and subtlety of it, and uh, the curiosity can continue to to develop like it builds on itself then too. Lovely. The curiosity builds on itself. It's leading onwards. Yeah. Which is a a, a really, really lovely sense. And uh, yeah, well, that feels a good place to begin to bring our our conversation to a close. And I kind of really feel, 
I really feel inspired to continue contemplating these aggregates. Um, I mean, I've given talks on many different things, you know, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Paths, Seven Factors of Awakening, but I'm not actually sure I've given a talk on the aggregates. And I'm really, yeah, I really feel inspired by the the juice that you find in them to, to contemplate these more. Great. Great. Yeah, I'm happy, happy to have infected you with my interest of the aggregates. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, enthusiasm does, it's catching in a nice way, right? Yeah, totally. And yeah, for me, like I've, um, I've learned about them and investigated them through practice. And then also, yeah, through Dharma friends who also are interested in them and then through reading about them. So both the, reading the, the suttas of them in which also like the Buddha has, is a master of metaphors. And so there are different metaphors for each of the aggregates that he um, uses. And, you know, I mentioned one about these like um, foam for the body, but there's one for each of the other ones too. And maybe I'll leave it as a, a tantalizing place of interest for you to find them yourself, yeah. uh, what the different ones are. And then there are also sort of aggregate, like um, metaphors for all of them that he uh, talks about or pulls together uh, too. That's interesting. So um, maybe I can share one of the, the kind of conglomerate ones. This, this, uh, that, so there's a story he tells about, you know, supposing there was a ruler, like a very wealthy person who had never heard the sound of a um, particular musical instrument, like let's say it's a guitar. And they hear the sound of this and they say, what is that sound? Like, that's so beautiful. Uh, bring it to me. And so the, the people say like, oh, it's, it's a guitar. Uh, it's a beautiful sound, and he's like, "Get me the guitar." So then, brings the guitar and says, "Well, show me the sound. Like, what's the, you know, wh where's the sound?" And he says, "Well, it's not. I mean, this is a thing, but the sound is like not." And he's like, "No, no, you all are dumb. I'm gonna find it." So he pulls the strings off, and it's like not in the strings. And he pulls the neck apart. It's not that. You know, breaks the baseboard. It's not in that. And then is looking for the sound of this guitar and then hacks it up into pieces and then burns the pieces and looks through the ashes and you know uh and then you know none of that is uh, the sound and then says like wow this is really, you know like i just got tricked by this thing that wasn't really the, the sound itself they got the wrong thing so in this way it's like yeah we need to investigate like each of these components the strings the baseboard the, you know all this stuff that's sort of the instrument through which but that there's no me or mine in that. Uh, in each of these components itself is what the, the Buddha is saying. So investigate all of these different elements, the, like you do the neck, the string, the frame, and, and so on. And, but you won't find the me or the self in these things, but we usually take them to be that. Mm -hmm. Which also in some ways, you know, interesting with this metaphor is it doesn't mean that there's no song, right? It doesn't mean that there's no song, but the song is the conditioned sort of like interplay of someone and the instrument and some, it's like a dynamic process that arises, uh, which can be beautiful and unique and so on, but it's not a thing. You know, a song is not a thing in any which way. Yeah. Yes, that reminds me of uh, the, the philosopher, um, Gilbert Ryle, who speaks about team spirit. And that's similar. He tells the story of somebody looking at a cricket team and saying, um, you know, I can see all these players, but can you also point out to me the team spirit and say, <laughs> but yeah, right. so too, the team spirit is something that arises with, uh, with the players, but it's not some kind of separate 
independently existing thing. Yeah. And then relatedly, a metaphor that's been very helpful for me is this story from Chuang Tzu, you know, of the empty boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have heard this one, you know, that uh, this is like, oh, as we develop, if we understand this anatta, like this um, not self in experience, not towards ourselves and also toward in relationship to others, seeming others, there can be a lot of freedom. So he's saying like, if you're rowing a boat on a pond and then another boat comes towards you and bumps into you, uh, you can just push it away and go on your uh, on your course, right? So you understand it's the wind and the waves and the current that has made that boat bump into you, like its conditions. But you don't actually have to hate the boat or yell at the boat, right? Like there's no sense in doing that. That's like wasted energy. But if there's someone in the boat that rows into you, then you might get mad at it and be like, hey, watch where you're going, dummy. Like, can you uh, rowing away that you don't hit me, et cetera. So in some ways, it's like, okay, as we get more um, convinced of or, you know, understand these things in more than intellectual way that we kind of like, uh, and embody isn't even the right word, like, right, like we, we have these insights into the aggregates and understanding of that being true for what we call ourselves, but also for others, then in some ways, like we can take appropriate action when we're in a conflict with someone else, but we don't have to have the added uh, friction of the hating them as if they are some solid permanent entity, right? Uh, like minus that we can take the action that's necessary that sometimes means pushing away or going somewhere else or even sometimes I think like speaking strongly to them, but it's minus having to like hate them or on the other side, having to obsess about them or chase them or something like that. So that can bring a lot of um, freedom and ease. And, you know, the promise of this path is a happiness and a contentedness and a well-being that's beyond all of these changing conditions. You know, that is a great promise of the possibility of that. And as you practice at every different level, I think you can have um, tastes of the different kind of happiness that's available to us. Uh, So, yeah, encouragement for your listeners to uh, check it out more and uh, practice with them and listen to Dhamma talks about them and yeah, yeah, all of that. Thank you. Thank you so much. That feels really, yeah, really inspiring and really uh, heart opening to kind of hear that, that promise spoken about so beautifully. So thank you. It's great to see you. And, and thanks again so much for, for talking to me today. Yeah, great to see you too. Hope to see you again. And yeah, invite anyone to join me on retreats if they wish at some point. Uh, I have a little Dharma website, anushkaf.org. You can come too. And um, yeah, I look forward to getting to be in person with you at some point as yeah. well. That would be that would be wonderful. And yeah, and, and will you be coming back to the UK to Gaia House sometime as well? Or? You know, I don't know. They had, uh, I was invited to come for last summer, but then, you know, obviously that got postponed cancelled um so we'll see you know i think things are changing in the world even in terms of travel both for climate reasons and um you know pandemic so we'll have to see uh what it is so i'll see if i get invited back in person or i've done some uh, virtual things with gaia house yeah. uh, as it goes and then yeah what seems to be the wise course of action to take and i know you hope doing... to be back yeah and i know you're doing the instagram things as well so Lots for those of us in the UK to connect with you 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. In, in one way or another. Great to see you. Anushka. Yeah. Take Good to see you too.